0: Hi, this is the Spotlight Report, where we shine light on the latest academic research on optical sciences. This week, we invited Isaac Trumper to talk about his work on instantaneous phase-shifting deflectometry. Isaac is a PhD student at the University of Arizona, and he has a lot of really interesting results to discuss. Uh, we really think you're going to enjoy this week's episode. Thanks for listening.
1: No, we're sorry. I was
0: fine. Is This is Spotlight Report? Sure. Okay. Check. Okay. Okay, so this is the Spotlight Report is Logan Graves.
2: My name is Sean.
0: And today we are going to talk about instantaneous deflectometry. This is the second episode under the broader topic of deflectometry. Uh, and we're sitting here with Isaac. So Isaac, can you introduce yourself?
1: Hey guys, I'm a second year PhD working in the LOFT group uh, on general testing methods for optical systems. In particular, I focus on deflectometry. My research over the past few years has been on instantaneous deflectometry, and we'll get into that shortly.
0: Great. And then I guess it's worth mentioning as well, did you do optics in undergrad?
1: Yeah. So uh, I did my undergrad at University of Rochester, kind of a competitor school. (laughs) I know it so many sideways looks about that. (laughs) But no, it's a good good change of pace coming here and get to meet different people, uh, see a different side. Of the world, so yeah, I did my undergraduate in optics. I specialized in testing there, more on the freeform optics um, side of things. I also really have a passion for optical design, so working with Zemax, Code 5, that kind of thing.
2: So why did you choose to come
1: here? Uh, I chose I chose to come to U of A because it was a different school, oh, and no. also because it had better scenery. Um, <laughs> sick of Rochester's flat, uh, lack of mountains, so that was a big motivation for me. I knew both schools were going to be good for my academic career, you know. We both do great work, but Tucson is just a much better location than Rochester.
0: Well, we won't uh, argue with that. Yeah, okay, so so why don't you tell us about what this instantaneous deflectometry is?
1: Sure. You may have heard previously, deflectometry is a a slope measuring tool. So we care about knowing the geometric positions of three different objects in space. Those three different objects are your screen, uh, where you're going to display whatever patterns you want in order to make your measurement, your camera that you use to record said image and then the optic or surface that you are going to test. All of those three components, you need to know exactly where they are in space to make a deflectometry measurement. And what that means is that you can compute the surface slope based on those three locations. To know those three locations, we start off with a couple of different assumptions, one being where our screen and camera are. And then based on the patterns we display, uh, you can create a mapping between um, that optic you're trying to test and the detector that you're recording the images with. What instantaneous deflectometry accomplishes is it takes all of that information that you need to record and puts it into a, just a single snapshot image. So previous methods may have taken you know 30 seconds to do a measurement or whatever amount of time. Well, in this, we're striving for as quickly as possible. And so the limitations for that are really about how quickly can you record an image and for modern cameras that's on the order of milliseconds, you know, depending on your exposure time, that kind of thing.
2: Yeah. So it seems like you can you can make as fast as possible, right?
1: Uh, theoretically, yeah, you can make as fast as possible. Um, now, when you try and go into the lab and actually do this, you run into some issues about the integration time for your sensor and really just the implementation of it requires some finite duration of time. Mm-hmm. But the theory, yeah, it's not limited by any means to be.
0: Okay, excellent. So one of the big parts in your paper is that you consider some prior work. So, deflectometry is isn't the only type of metrology and additionally it seems like the instantaneous phase-shifting deflectometry that you came up with isn't the only method of an Instantaneous measurement. So, what are some other measurements?
1: Right, methods? right. Um, so, during uh, whenever you start a research project, you always want to search, kind of, you know, what's been published prior, and what are some of the good references that you're going to have when you're doing your research. And something that we came across was this concept of Fourier transform profilometry, which relies on the same concept of deflectometry. And they term it a different name called reflectometry, but it's the same same idea of optical slope measuring, right? Um, And so what they do there is they still make an instantaneous measurement, but the way in which they create a mapping, so the required information to compute a slope, is using a different fundamental uh, mathematical method. They use a Fourier transform, which is basically turning a spatial distribution into a, a frequency distribution. With that information, they're able to create a mapping out of a single image. There are some positives and, and negatives about that, and we explore it in the paper. Um, one of the main limitations or uh, considerations to make when trying to choose a method is that anytime you use a Fourier process in your in your um, measurement, you're going to have some sort of I don't want to call it errors, but um, ambiguity is associated with masking in the Fourier domain. And I should say that this uh, Fourier transform profilometry method requires a mask in order to compute the, the surface. Um,
0: and so, and I just want to jump in real quick sure. because I think for some, some people listening, they might not be super familiar with um, Fourier transforms, but... I think a good way to think of it is if you're playing uh, like a guitar and you play a chord, the Fourier transform of that sound signal would show you the individual notes that compose that chord. It really so so for anyone listening, it it tells you what individual frequencies are present and how much they're present relative to each other. Um, So for for an object, if you're measuring an object, it tells you the frequencies of present on the object in terms of shapes, literally.
1: Right, right, exactly. And so um, when we have that frequency information, we can isolate a fundamental frequency, or the uh, carrier frequency is sometimes what it's called. And basically any uh, local deviations from that fundamental correspond to surface shape errors or surface shape deviations from that nominal. And that's what allows us to do the reconstruction process using the Fourier transform profilometry method. And so that map in order to do the reconstruction, you have to mask around your fundamental in such a way that you create either some overlap uh, when you do the reconstruction or more just ambiguity about what mask shape to use. There's kind of an infinite number of possibilities. And
0: so when you're talking about a mask, I think of it, again, like sorry to go back to music, but I think of like, oh, I'm using a low pass filter or a band pass filter so that I can select which frequencies I want present and just throw everything else out, totally ignore it. And you're doing this, but you're doing it in the spatial regime.
1: So we're, we're still doing it in the, in the frequency domain. We're applying our mask in the frequency domain, but the uh, difference between a low-pass or high-pass filter is that it's more centralized around a given carrier frequency, and so it's it's a combination of both uh, low and high pass, mm-hmm. but in a more unique geometry. So it's not just a single frequency cutoff point, but rather a whole range of frequencies. Yeah, yeah.
0: I I phrased it poorly. We'll, I mean, we'll get into it more when we talk about the paper more. But you have a figure in the paper showing how you're uh, applying this mask mm-hmm. to extract X and Y right. stuff. But we'll get into that more later. Sure. Um, sure. So you talked about Fourier transform profilometry. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think as well, something that is used is uh, instantaneous interferometry. Sure, yeah. Do um, you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So interferometry has been a staple of metrology uh, for, I don't know, some odd years, 20, 30 years, something like that. Um, and it really has served as you know a gold standard of what we can achieve in terms of accuracy. And um, in that field, they have developed an instantaneous technique to overcome some of the limitations that they encountered Um, and so comparing our deflectometry method to interferometry so two distinct measurement uh, methods relying on different physical phenomena is a good comparison to say okay this is what has been used in the field of metrology for the longest time and and here's how our method compares against it Um, so you know drawing parallels to different communities is a great thing to do um, just because it makes people uh, relate To your work more more easily, and you know it sets it it. it. right, right, Right. exactly, yeah. It sets yourself up in a context that you know makes sense to more people,
0: right. And interferometers, again, for people not, especially not in fabrication, I would say, uh, of optics, they're like the commercial gold standard. And at least in Tucson, we have a famous company who does instantaneous interferometry called 4D. And I want to add that they're really useful when you're fabricating because a lot of times you might have some continuous system going on that's adding air, like turbulence, in between your uh, camera or your interferometer system or whatever and your optic. And using this uh, instantaneous interferometry, or now instantaneous deletometry, you you get around that. You don't have this weird turbulent vibration or whatever.
1: Right, right.
2: So, if I want you to uh, summarize your own um, instantaneous deep in one sentence or three words, how would you like to introduce
1: it? Wow, uh, it's, quite, <laughs> it's quite difficult to do that. Um,
2: yeah, so, like, uh, what is the most different part?
1: compared to other metrology tools out there. Um, Well, okay, so it's kind of contained in the title because we want to definitely say that it's instantaneous. Um, That's a huge component of what makes this method novel. But it's also relying on a phase-shifting method to do the mapping, which sets itself apart from the Fourier transform profilometry that we discussed previously Um, because it's it's calculating this slope using different uh, math. And so that... uh, that allows you to maybe achieve better accuracy or be less sensitive to certain parameters in your measurement. Um, So it's really just another distinct method of computing the optical surface's slope.
2: Okay, so what is the advantage of it? Or what is the main goal of this uh, method?
1: So the main goal of the method, I think, is to provide a tool um, that people in the fabrication community um, can use in order to measure optical surfaces that require um, a deflectometry method. And we can discuss that a little bit, but basically it it comes down to high dynamic range, um, measuring very steep surfaces where traditional methods such as interferometry can't handle. So providing them a tool that can be instantaneous. There have been deflectometry methods out there for a little bit of time now. They've shown to be good, accurate tools, but so far they haven't been instantaneous. As Logan mentioned, there are a number of advantages of having that capability over something that needs you know, a finite amount of time to, to work. And so some of that, uh, not just in terms of air turbulence, but vibrations or what happens if you want to measure a surface that is actively changing. The modern telescopes have active primary mirrors where they you know, use actuators on the backsides to help control low-order shape errors. Another application could be in the field of adaptive optics where we've got pretty fast-changing surfaces, but before they're introduced into this closed-loop, adaptive optic system they need to be characterized and so maybe this deflectometry measurement um, is is an avenue for that
0: so
2: do you mind to introduce your whole experiment
1: sure yeah um, so this instantaneous deflectometry uh, method we implemented on an iPhone wow. it was my own personal device yeah yeah it was pretty fun to learn um, so I'd never done any iOS programming before this research endeavor getting the skills required to do that was part of the upfront cost and that was a great experience that. I mean where else could I have spent um, you know five months learning how to do iOS programming? Uh, so and yeah, getting paid for it. Right and getting paid <laughs> for it, yeah <laughs> exactly. Uh-huh. So once I had mastered iOS not, not really, but in any case. We developed an app that allowed us to collect data and you know, kind of use the camera on the iPhone um, in order to implement this method. Um, and we chose the iPhone because we had this dream of being able to distribute our measurement tool. To, um, and so a lot of people have iPhone devices and it just seemed like an interesting application. There's some actually some hidden benefits of using an iPhone device that we only learned later on, but uh, I'll come back to that. So the measurement itself, <laughs> (laughs) goes something like this. You set up your iPhone device. Uh, We 3D printed a holder for it. So basically, you know, think of a case that you would use to protect your iPhone, but instead of having a flat back to it, it's got this cylindrical protrusion coming out, and we use that to clamp onto some sort of mounting structure. And that's...
0: It's like a very sciencey version of the little toy that, that it looks like teenagers are putting on the back of their iPhones these days. Have so you seen this like pop-up
1: thing? So can... No, I haven't seen that it looks at all. exactly
0: like? Okay, this, like huh. a very sciency. Oh,
1: there you go. All right. It, so. Well, yeah, if that helps draw the picture. Then great. Yeah. So we use that case to hold and stabilize the iPhone, and then you know your optic is held in whatever mount it needs to be held in, and you have to position it such that the camera can see the optic and also see the screen, the iPhone screen, at the same time, and then you basically. see set up, uh, what pattern you want to display on that screen, and this method has a very specific pattern uh, that we use. And so you collect a single image looking at the optic and process what that image looks like in a certain way, and it allows you to reconstruct that optic's uh, shape. So the patterns that we display are unique to this method because they allow us to uh, kind of combine all of, all of the required information to do this mapping into just one single display. And so that's really what makes it an instantaneous process versus non-instantaneous. All other previous methods would need to display oh six or more patterns uh, in order to make a full measurement, whereas we display uh, the full six all in just one.
0: And you're built upon was something called phase shifting deflectometry, where normally when we used to do this, we would have a display that would just show a sinusoidal fringe pattern, and you literally shift the phase in multiple consecutive images, and that's how you how you'd get your all your measurement data and combine it in post processing. So you're combining color, you're combining the fact that you're encoding all the phases at once. So how how did you do that? How did you get all this
1: information? Right, right. Um, so as, as you mentioned, the previous methods used phase shifting, which is you take a sinusoidal modulation to the brightness of your screen and you display that. And then you collect an image. The next pattern that you display is a slightly shifted version of that. How much you shift is dictated by kind of how much noise might be present in your in your measurement. Um, there is a limit on the smallest number of shifts that you can do. So So that's the minimum required to do a full phase shifting measurement. And so in order to, uh, you know, start at the basics, we uh, started with three different phase shifts, which has a little bit more sensitivity to errors in the phase shifts. So if you somehow get it wrong, or maybe there's some variation in your um, display brightness, you know, between those phase shifts, then it can cause some errors that if you used more would not be present. But so with those three phase shifts, uh, we decided is you use color to identify each different phase shift. What that means is that on your displays, so your phone display, your TV display, um, anything really that can do color, there are three distinct um, pixels or usually LEDs nowadays um, that can display red, green, and blue wavelengths we have complete control over what intensity those pixels uh, display at. And so that allows us to independently decide, okay, the red pattern will look like this, the green pattern will look slightly different, and each of those is the phase shifted image. So that does phase shifting for our instantaneous method. But there's another component that deflectometry needs, whereas interferometry doesn't. Um, It's that deflectometry measures uh, slope, Instead of just an optical surface or optical path length, which is true in interferometry. Um, so, the slope, you need two different directions, uh, call it X and Y, in order to reconstruct your whole entire surface. And so, therefore, we don't just need three different phase shifts, we need three in each direction to do the full reconstruction.
0: For a total of six?
1: Correct, right, for a total that's of six images. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, exactly. And so, we had to come up with some other way of multiplexing or adding on these additional pieces of information. Uh, Our solution to that problem came about in using a Fourier transform analysis method. And you might be thinking to yourself, oh wait, so it's the same thing as Fourier transform profilometry then, right? Yeah? Uh, No, not really, it's a little bit, it's different. Because the Fourier transform analysis that we use is not based around a masking algorithm, uh, but rather as a orthogonalization method. Method. In Fourier space, it's very good at distinguishing between direction of frequency. So what I mean by direction is the sense of if you can somehow play a note in... I don't know if there's a good sound uh, comparison or uh, analogy. I'm, I'm trying to think of one and
0: I really can't.
1: Right, right. Because it, it's about distinguishing an, a sound wave that is traveling in one direction from a sound wave that is traveling in another direction. Yeah. So maybe. It's to two different ears, right? So if you could if you could play a note on what on the right hand side versus the left hand side, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, they're two different instruments or two different uh, sources, right?
0: Yeah, um, actually, yeah. So that actually is a really, really good example. So how, how are you?
1: So, yeah, we're using the Fourier analysis tool to be able to basically do what your brain is doing when it's hearing left versus right. Um, and so that allows us to multiplex two more uh, pieces of information on top of each of the three maps, uh, because... In each of the red, green, blue channels, we can do this Fourier analysis and get two pieces of information out of that one input data set. That gives us a grand total of six independent pieces of information that we can put together in any way that we want and use to reconstruct our surface. Coincidentally, well, I don't know about coincidentally, but uh, luckily that's the exact minimum requirement needed to do a phase-shifting deflectometry measurement. And so we went ahead and, and did that. There, there are some tricks to getting it to work and some uh, some complications that we ran into, but we were able to be pretty successful, I think.
0: Well, yeah, but it looks like it. I mean, if you, if you look at the paper and we get into the results, then it looks like it was uh, pretty good. Yeah, yeah very mm-hmm, successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. yeah. So I want to add, or I guess ask one more thing, and that is that we asked earlier, why would someone use the instantaneous deflectometry when you have the interferometer and the uh, profilometer? And they're definitely different, it sounds like. But I think a key point is, like, how much did all this cost for you outside of, like, the time that you had mm-hmm. to take to learn it? How much did it, would it cost an average person to get this app and set this up and take a measurement.
1: Yeah. Um, so you kind of need to have some way to 3D print, or at the very least, hold an iPhone device. Um, and really, this is, gen- or I shouldn't say iPhone, because it's any iOS device. You um, you can, you know, That's the beauty of iOS software, is that you could load it onto an iPad, an iPhone, iPod, whatever. And so you need that device, which might be a pretty substantial upfront cost if one does not already own an iOS device. A couple hundred. Ye- yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe you get an older eye. Sure, sure. Okay, right, yeah. So a couple hundred for that guy. And then if you want to 3D print a case, maybe it's $50 worth of 3D printing materials and time. But, you know, for a grand total of under 500 you can make this kind of measurement in your own home.
0: And this kind of measurement is accurate to...
1: What kind of accuracy? So it's it's comparable to interferometry, and to give you an idea of the cost per per unit accuracy you we're achieving, the interferometers yeah, might run you thirty thousand dollars, fifty thousand dollars, depending on what style you to, get to a couple hundred thousand. Right, right. Yeah, you can definitely so have, go. Yeah, down
0: down in the uh, large optics shop, we have two that are over three
1: hundred thousand. Just to give the listeners some perspective. Uh-huh, right, right. So this is an accurate measurement that is made for cheap. And that's been the whole goal of deflect... Or not goal, but one of the strong selling points of deflectometry in general is that the components required to do this kind of measurement are really common and so therefore very accessible and cheap to buy. And the, you don't suffer inaccuracy very very much at all. Right. right? I, will, I will mention that currently the app is not available to download. Uh, we have... Some um, limitations in terms of how much we can process on the iPhone. Uh, Right now we collect all the data and then send it via email or through direct connection to your computer for post-processing using MATLAB uh, functions. (laughs) And so in order to actually reconstruct a surface or or process your data you need a a MATLAB license.
0: Right, right. But theoretically um, it would be like a couple hundred bucks. And right. I mean, someone could potentially rewrite the MATLAB component in Java or Python. We were just talking about a popular Python is.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so, yeah, a more open source platform. Yeah, definitely. Right. Right. So,
0: so for the average person, potentially this this could mean that you can make a really accurate measurement down to nanometer level error for really inexpensive, mm-hmm.
1: yep, exactly.
0: I think is like a great tie together of science and technology.
1: Right, right. It's, Utilizing some commercially available uh, hardware
0: yeah, that yeah. a lot of it's, people have access to. It's hard with research because you do get a lot of these projects where it's like tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars to do a research project. And you get really interesting scientific information, but this was this is both you mm-hmm, get, mm-hmm. really interesting tech coming out of this project. Right, so, right.
1: And so something the average uh, person might want to do with such a device is measure their windows. It's always been something that I've wanted to try in my home is set this up and see, like, you know, as the sun heats them up, how does my window change? Or, you know, just kind of like, what does my bathroom right, mirror right. look like? And that's something you could definitely do with this technology. Technology.
0: Right. Yeah. You might be a little bit more advanced than the average. <laughs> the average I don't know that everyone sits inside and… And wonders about these things. Right. No, but it, but it, I think it is useful one even for professionals. Yeah.
2: Um, I think it's pretty good, especially when you are doing some fabrication job. You definitely want to know, oh, what does this surface look like mm-hmm, right now? Just yeah. some really quick check. Right. Of, Go to use the interferometers and change
0: all the things and waiting for the right, right, exactly. Yeah, which is which. Yeah, and that's a great point. So an interferometer takes a little bit of time to apply. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It takes a machine that took hours to. uh, Probably almost a couple hundred hours for buying a nice interferometer to make sure everything's aligned and that it won't move. Uh, and then it takes time to use their software. So how long does a measurement take with this, and how hard is
1: it? Uh, so the setup is is very easy. You kind of just plunk the iPhone down in front of the thing you're trying to test, and it's a few button presses on you know on the uh, interface, and that's pretty much what you do to collect data. The processing side, it might take uh, five minutes at most to process, um, and that's for you know, a handful of images You know, over time that you've collected. Uh, for a single image, it might take 30 seconds to do the entire data processing. Mm-hmm. And so... So you, you nailed the art of
0: uh, making a successful app in that it's really easy and it doesn't take too long for the user.
1: Right, right, exactly. Now, maybe my, my interface could use a little bit of work. It's a little planned right now, so it might not hook people. Right. Um, but yeah, so... It, Throw some birds in there. Yeah, okay, great, yeah. <laughs> some flashy things. Right, right. Um, but that's true.
0: I mean, I think we already use it currently um, in our lab fabrication. We used it for, we didn't use the instantaneous deflectometry, but we used kind of the prior work in deflectometry to make the DKIS primary, which was uh, like a $30 million mirror. We're using it for the GMT mirrors, which are the biggest mirrors in the world. So this stuff, this science is being applied for the biggest and the best mirrors. And then additionally, it's being applied in our lab for research. So you when you're doing the yeah. application, you use it. And I think because it's so inexpensive, I mean like kids could use it, people could use it in their house or whatever, mm-hmm. but kids could use it for science projects. Right, so right. I think, I mean, yeah, I think it's really,
1: really exciting. It really makes optics metrology uh, much more accessible. Right. Um, you know, usually you'd be limited to very rough estimates of what a surface could look like, but now you get very detailed information. Mm-hmm. Um, something that I, I want to mention though is that this measurement um, and in particular, the instantaneous deflectometry measurement is a little bit limited in the low-order shape measure, in the low-order shape quality, uh, meaning that it does a great job if you're trying to measure changes over time. Uh, but if you just want one single uh, image of the surface and it's going to be static, you know nothing varying, it has a lot of uh, uncertainties associated with the color multiplexing, the Fourier analysis, and you know just the geometric position positioning of all of these components influences the low order uh, shapes greatly. Right. What I mean by low order is really uh, what is you know, the radius of curvature, how much astigmatism do you have, so that's a variation in radius of curvature in the two different directions. Um, those kinds of, of low order shapes we don't measure very well, um, especially with this app because it's you know, hard to make precise geometric measurements.
2: But it's okay, because there are lots of easy ways to do the low-order measurements.
1: Right, right, exactly. And so what this, even in a single measurement, this can do pretty good high-order or high-spatial frequency um, information. It excels at, if you have some sort of surface that you want to watch, it's changed with time. It can do very accurate uh, recording of that.
0: So I think now would be a good time to ask, how did you actually test this? Um, what did that What did that look like? How did you convince people it worked?
1: We had this idea, and some people in the group had thought about this instantaneous uh, metrology system before, and they did some preliminary work, decided it really wasn't worth pursuing, and so there was a little bit of hesit- hesitancy yet about I was, I was one of those. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> um, a little bit of, you know, we weren't sure it was going to work, but, you know, we went for it anyways, right, because that's what is all about. And so to test this thing and to make sure that it actually was working correctly, uh, we wanted to come up with a comparison between our method and interferometry, which, as we had mentioned before, is really the gold standard for metrology. And so to do that, we took a specific surface shape, measured it once with this iPhone system, and then also measured it with the interferometer. And when you do this, uh, you can compute some difference maps that basically take Showing the error in our measurement compared to an interferometer, which our advisor always likes to mention. That who knows if interferometer is is the actual truth, right? It could have some errors too. So we always want to be sure to say that it's not the absolute truth, but always in in relation to this uh, set standard. So when you do that, you can take some do some statistical processing of the maps, usually root mean square of it, or measure the peak to valley change. Um, And and when we look at that, we're down in the 25-30 nanometers RMS, so root-mean square error between the two uh, measurements. And for an iPhone system that, you know, you can buy for a fraction of the cost of the interferometer, that's an amazing uh, feat to achieve.
0: An RMS error just kind of super loosely is roughly how
1: you'd say is like the average air. Like sure, right, right. Across the entire surface. Into like the, the actual equation. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh-huh. 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 It's, it's a good metric to see, um, on average, how off are you across the entire surface. Right. Um, yeah.
0: And then, so what optic in particular... In the paper, I think you said that you tested an uh, adaptive, yeah, mm-hmm. adaptive optic mirror.
1: Yeah, so the interferometer we had access to was not instantaneous. And so in order to um, really test that aspect of it, we relied on um, a deformable mirror, which is an actively controlled, very thin membrane reflective surface. Um, and it has a whole bunch of actuators, I think 52 to be exact. Um, on the backside of this membrane that can push and pull it. And basically think of like a, a balloon surface, you know, that kind of like uh, membrane, but you have control over where exactly each point on that surface is located in space. So that allows you to generate, um, you know, kind of arbitrary surfaces. Uh, so that's something we use to test the instantaneous or dynamic uh, measurement capability of the iPhone system.
0: Okay, well, and, uh, and so it seems like it's Super accurate. I mean, tens of 25 nanometers, 25 Mm -hmm. nanometers of RMS. Right, right. So, then what are the next steps? You you showed it worked. You made it, you showed it worked. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so what are the next steps?
1: Really, we'd like to move towards more scientific hardware. Um, the iPhone is a great tool. It was a great a platform to implement our initial software on, but the ideal case would be to improve the accuracy further um, and not limit us to really such a relative measurement anymore, but really you know, single uh, snapshots would be great. And so that would use more, uh, more precise hardware, I guess. Um, and so we've done a little bit of research into that. Uh, the results are, are different, which is interesting to say the least. You know, Using the same hardware that we do for more traditional deflectometry measurements, we aren't able to achieve the quality that the iPhone can achieve. And so there are some interesting questions to be asked about that. You, know, you would say, okay, these, this hardware costs more than the iPhone does, so why is it not producing better results? Um, yeah, so it's interesting to, to keep learning about hmm. yeah
0: yeah I, uh, uh apple should use on their next iphone pitch Seriously, it's, right? It's for uh-huh. and that is oh, we don't have to talk about it too much but it is interesting that it seems as if talking to you that Apple kind of calibrated their camera to their screen, so you get a lot of, you get a really low air between those.
1: Yeah, and you also have to think about what the iPhone was designed for. What kind of images was it designed to take? And something a, a professor back at uh, Rochester would say to me is that all of these front facing cameras on the iPhone or, you know, whatever mobile devices were really made to take selfies in a bar. So that's low light levels, and, you, you know, you want to be able to, to distinguish all of these features on your face, and turns out that's a perfect set of design criteria for our deflectometry <laughs> measurements. Wow. So um, it's a good pairing between you know what the community wants and also what our research needs. Um, <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. So it seems like we have
0: uh, advice for Apple Card.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Advice on their next endeavor. Yeah.
0: <laughs> They'll branch into deflectometry
1: systems.
0: Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, cool. So, what, I guess, into like less of the science of it, but what was the hardest part of the research project? Uh,
1: for me, the writing process really came naturally because I had collected all this data, I had thought about you know the implications of it, and really it flowed um, pretty well initially. And then you go through the review process and it's like, oh, wait, no, I forgot all of this, and oh, what about this component? So, you know, the, the review process in publishing a scientific article was definitely a test of endurance and flexibility. Uh, so
0: and taking criticism well, I don't, All right, know about, exactly. I don't know about your paper, but I've gotten some papers back where the criticism is uh, either extremely harsh or totally like not related to the paper and harsh. Mm-hmm. And it's a real a real patience game to say like, man, I still have to respond to this. Right. Entirely
1: useless comment. Right. Oh, I felt the same exact way. <laughs> and um, it's it's been a learning experience about, like, I don't know, making sure that you satisfy the reviewers' uh, right. questions. And, yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about. Mm-hmm. But uh, so apart from the writing process, I would say the hardest part was probably not even coming up with the method, but rather verifying it and making sure that we weren't doing anything completely crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the initial idea was was developed I don't know pretty early on in the process and then we kind of stumbled across this Fourier analysis method like no real no real like I don't know, long hours were spent. You know, trying to come up with this this multiplexing scheme, but rather a lot of the time was invested in the error correction and making sure that you know our our sources of noise in the camera, the color crosstalk, all of that kind of stuff wasn't going to um, kill us. Mm-hmm. And part of that was through experimental validation, and you know the knowledge gained with how do I actually process this data to get it to you know, give me the information I need. It's um, probably the hardest part to do. Yeah, yeah. That and struggling with the iOS programming language. <laughs> oh man, I, I came across like I don't know if it's bugs or what it is with the iPhone, um, but developing on it, yeah, I ran into some tricky situations. Huh. And I think that's because I'm trying to do more scientific computing with it than it was you know, designed for. Right. Most of the apps, you you display a few things, respond to the user input a few times, but you don't have to have to do a lot of coordinated computation. Mm-hmm which is all of this app does, really. And so running into those issues is mm-hmm. tricky. and having no uh, prior knowledge was also.
0: Yeah, it's impressive that you picked up an entirely new programming language. Yeah, yeah. On top of doing an entirely new <laughs> project. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, so doing
2: what you're do doing right now. Uh,
1: so as we mentioned, we're trying to further this technology a little bit um, in terms of making it more scientific. Um, And as I mentioned, there's some limitations with that hardware uh, that stem from the image processing. Uh, The iPhone has some built-in image processing software, and so that's doing a really great job in, in benefiting us a lot. Um, but I'm also working on a couple of different projects that aren't related to deflectometry. I like to keep a wide spectrum of, um, of things yeah. going on, and yeah, it keeps me happy, keeps me excited uh, about all the different projects. So um, Something else I'm doing is optical design, and as I mentioned, that's a passion of mine, so getting to work in these two areas has been a lot of fun. And, yeah.
0: Hmm. And uh, I want to ask um, another thing about the paper. You talked about the fact that this could be used for measuring bending modes of mirrors, mm-hmm. uh, the instantaneous deep So, can you describe a little bit how that would be, how, how that would actually be implemented in practice and why it would be useful?
1: Yeah, so the bending modes of a mirror really come back to these large uh, optics that we're fabricating uh, here at the U of A for telescopes in that once you have your surface, um, there are a whole bunch of actuators on the back side of it that can push and pull and correct for some low-order shape error uh, that may be residual in whatever substrate that you've polished on. Um, And so that low-order shape error correction because it's it's done in an active way, uh, is would be a great thing to measure during the movement of the actuators. Usually, right now, what they do is they take a uh, nominal state measurement. So when when all the actuators are off. And then they have some sort of kind of like influence function or idea about, okay, we need to apply this amount of force to get the mirror to move this amount. And so they do that motion and take another measurement and say, okay, well, we're a little bit off. Let's try again. Or, okay, we got it. Good. But um, being able to measure as that change is occurring would be a great feature for making the process go smoother, making sure you understand exactly all the dynamics of that. Um, something else to consider is. That that when these when these actuators are on and you know they're applying forces to the mirror, uh, they have some sort of resonant frequency along with any mechanical system. And so, how does that frequency affect the shapes that you can generate? Maybe when you know you try and limit the amount of of kind of vibrations that your telescope experiences, but being able to characterize that kind of stuff is only possible through an instantaneous measurement. Um, right. So this deflectometry with its large dynamic range uh, could could definitely handle those kinds of situations.
0: And you know, I had, uh, we previously had talked about this, I, I spoke with a professor who did mechanical engineering, and we were thinking, eventually, if you get a fast enough frame rate camera, uh, like really fast, like mm-hmm. lower level, um, You can do some really interesting stuff looking at uh, mechanical bodies to see what the resonant frequencies are, and that can tell a lot about the safety Mm. of things um, in terms of whether or not you have a bad resonant frequency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, basically as for your environment, you know, so. Right. Yeah, so I wanted to add also that for the bending modes of a mirror, they're physically used to to correct a, uh, a mirror when it's actually installed. Mm-hmm. So the DKIS primary is 4.2 meter mirror, or a lot of the, really any of the other large mirrors, people spend millions of dollars to buy them and have them made and they need to be perfect. And we spend months and years polishing it, measuring it and polishing it and you get it out and it's pretty much perfect and then you ship it and install it and build a building and all of these little layers stack up so that it's just not perfect when it actually gets there. And you can use these bending modes of the mirror to literally bend it so that it images perfectly. And and like you're saying, it's really essential to know them correctly. (laughs) Right, right. Um, We can jump into the, the air correction. Because that, that's a significant part of the paper,
1: right. and it was it, it was really interesting and also really complex. Okay, yeah. Um, so that was born out of the review process. Um, the reviewers are like, "What you achieve this level of accuracy? What's your error correction? You know, how do you handle the, the linearity in the display? What's about the color crosstalk in your detector? All of these kinds of components that." Um, to us were kind of built into the measurement. And so uh, it was more about formulating our methods in a way that made sense to the community and that's very important for making sure your ideas are understood Uh, and so this error correction is really relying on the the relative change of your surface and so that's what allows us to achieve such high accuracy because we are taking snapshot measurements in time we can use our first measurement as a baseline in order to say, okay, all subsequent measurements are relative to this baseline. And what that baseline allows us to do is subtract out all of the, or a majority of the nonlinearities and strange effects that you might see in this kind of color multiplexing Fourier analysis measurement. And so that has a number of different subtleties within it. You always have to remember that at the end of the day, it's really a baseline subtraction where we process all of the data and you get your weird looking maps, whatever they may be, you know, with significant errors in them. And then you subtract from each and every map this one baseline. Some of the assumptions that come on when you do this are that the range over which the errors are the same or constant in the maps is in your measurement range. So you could think of this as your surface is changing, uh, maybe that surface height change Causes a different amount of error to be present at that location on the mirror, um, and so we had to show that um, over our range of desired surface height changes, our error was not changing by much. So we call that a quasi-static um, assumption, meaning that we, we approximate our errors as constant, even though they are weird and complex. They are the same, approximately the same, between each and every measurement. Which, which is stating that. Within- System errors,
0: basically. Right. System right. Exactly. Yep. Yep. yep.
1: The next thing that uh, was was essential for this kind of error correction method was that every subsequent measurement that you do as your surface is varying, the only thing changing in your measurement is that surface height. Mm-hmm. And so that's not true in a lot of other metrology systems where maybe you have to change out an optical element or you have to replace a transmission sphere with something else um, in interferometers. And so this this we call a common configuration because everything Thing is the same except for the change that you want to measure and so that really allows you to hone in on or focus on that particular change the you know if you want to compare one version of deflectometry to the next same common configuration all that's changing is your pattern on your screen and so deflectometry in general lends itself well to this uh, kind of helpful error correction method. Um, But when you combine the quasi-static and the common configuration into one larger scheme, uh, you can achieve a good high, or a good agreement between um, interferometry and deflectometry. So that error correction method took care of, um, as I mentioned before, color leaking between channels. So when you try and multiplex over red, green, blue, What happens if some signal from the red channel leaks into the green channel, which is inevitable in a common or in a any detector really? Uh, And so, when you do this correction method, you eliminate some of those errors. In terms of the color bleeding, Mm -hmm. um, every
0: every detector, I think sometimes people hear red, green, blue, and it's not like they're at these single wavelengths. It's these broad yeah. spectrums, especially in a display, and the detector has filters, color filters, over, uh, and, and over these individual pixels and make up super pixels. Um, and like you're saying, like you just get some signal from red and the green, mm-hmm. green and blue, and vice versa. So. so did you encounter any error with super pixels, with having a single pixel be composed of the red, green,
1: and blue? So that was something when we were first make, or first doing our error analysis and, um, you know, wondering if this method was accurate or not, um, something that we considered as a large source. And so the pixel pitch on your detector and screen are different. They have different sized pixels. And so therefore the spacing between your red, green, blue is going to vary across them as well. And so what if there's a mismatch between that sampling, you know, your pixels from one channel don't overlap. Lap well with the other channel and so there are a whole bunch of complexities with that. But then you have to think about the larger scheme of at what level will that affect our measurement versus the other kind of like geometric errors about where you're putting your device and um, also the non-linearity in the screen display uh, and, and detector. Uh, non-linearity, those are probably more fundamental or more limiting than the separation between physical separation between your color channels. Um, something else to note is that most um, detectors have a bare filter which uses two green filters for every one red and blue filter. And that is built around the human eye's response to wavelengths where we're more sensitive to the green wavelengths, uh, so they want detectors to be more sensitive as well so they can generate images that look pleasing to our eyes mm-hmm. um, so something that we noticed during our measurements was that the green uh, channels looked way better than the red or blue um, in terms of quality it went green then red then blue just because that's how uh, the detector was built in order to match the human perception that's right.
0: a- and so were there any other relevant errors or uh- Considerations to be made
1: in the final, uh, at the end of the day? So, um, not further than this uh, quasi static common configuration error correction method, Um, we didn't apply really anything else. when we were looking at the comparison between our our instantaneous deflectometry method with the interferometer, we made sure that they were uh, scaled appropriately. But um, that's just a, a fundamental... Kind of agreement uh, assumption that you make. The interferometer has an ambiguity there as well, right. so it, it's really just setting them on the same playing field. But no other real error correction method was applied mm-hmm. uh, for our method. Now, if you wanted to do more accurate measurements, I think there are a lot more um, steps to take, such right. as correcting the display nonlinearity, um, mapping the color crosstalk effects, and there are a number of papers out there about doing such error correction methods. But for our results, because we were uh, able to make relative measurements in the same exact configuration, those kinds of error corrections weren't uh, super critical. Right. Right. Which is,
0: it's uh, a point that a professor that I had, Professor Dubin, brings up a ton is that In an engineering project, if you can make a relative measurement in the same configuration, you're way better off because you no longer have to worry about all the system level errors and all the differences between every measurement just relative to
1: to whatever your baseline is. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. Um, so that brings up a good point about another application for this technology is if it's in quality control and you have some standard of, that you want to meet, um, you have that information and all your subsequent verifications are reference to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, you drop in your next test subject and you say, okay, does it pass? Does it not? You know, right? right. This can be a great, quick, easy application.
0: Right. So how much air did you have at the end of the day? If you, if you told someone, here's, I took a measurement, here's your surface, plus or minus what? For
1: just one single measurement?
0: For one single measurement? Yeah. And then additionally for
1: the relative changes? So that single measurement, I wouldn't trust at all. Okay. Um, it so had, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't even tell them anything? I wouldn't even tell them anything. <laughs> right. Yes, yeah I would not use this method to just make a single measurement. Right. Um, but the relative, yeah, we're, you know, we're looking at over a height difference of five microns uh, which is what we tested in in the deep in the deformable mirror, uh we had an rms error of 25 nanometers and so you could scale that but uh you know i think we could achieve more height change as well you know the limit of our deformable mirror not of the detection scheme mm-hmm. um, so I would say a good average assumption would be about 50 nanometers RMS error. Um, And we tested this over low order shape changes and high order shape changes. So it's not like because deflectometry has a hard time Measuring absolute or single low-order shapes, that the relative shape would be difficult to measure as well. No, it's not true. We can we can do the relative easily. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing limiting us there.
0: So that's that's like under a percent error.
1: The 50 nanometers to um, five micron. I was doing no, 25. Okay. Then yeah, yeah. I think either one really would be, mm-hmm. which is really phenomenal um,
0: at that at that level. Are there any optics that you really want to test
1: with this that you didn't get a chance to? Um, Besides your windows and your you're right, right in my own home, um, something that I w- would love to test is a more freeform optic. Um, and I mean, of course, your deformable mirror is freeform in itself, but like, you know, there's something different about having an actual freeform surface. Something that I, that I thought of later on is being able to measure the thermal coefficient of expansion of a material, you know, be it a glass, subst- or a glass substrate that you've mirrored uh, the first surface of. Watching that as the temperature changes, how does it affect the, the shape would be very interesting to check out. And that gets um, much more complex and exciting. Once you include some more complicated structures on the back surface, of the optic, yeah. so how you're going to actually mount this thing. Um, I was about to say, we have a lab mate who's
0: working on studying the uh, aberrations induced by thermal expansion when, a, when an optic is mounted, yeah, and this would be like the perfect tool to use right. to actually right. test it, right. because yep. he's simulating it right now. Exactly, so. yeah. It would be a great pairing of that.
1: I agree. Yeah.
2: And there is an idea that just came into my mind. Mm-hmm. Does you think it can measure the water surface?
1: Uh uh-huh. so A lot of the other papers about Fourier transform profilometry or instantaneous deflectometry methods use water surface uh, as their kind of like test case for look at the dy- dynamic measurement. <laughs> um, unfortunately, they never compare their results with an interferometer, uh, so it makes it hard to say you know to what level they're able to do this. But yeah, we could definitely measure water surface or you know anything that has a strong enough surface reflection, we could definitely measure. <laughs> Well, yeah, so
0: I think that we're nearly out of time. So maybe we could close with how do you see uh, this research affecting the layperson? So when someone who's not in the objects field, would they ever see this research
1: actually impacting them? I think that's a really interesting question to ask because sometimes when we do research, we get lost uh, in the science of it and you know, really about uh, publishing our results and you know, making exciting new scientific developments and don't really think about, okay, how does this technology actually affect the lives of the global community? Um, and so when you ask that question, I struggle at first to come up with some answers um, because it's, I think it's hard to find a direct application, uh, meaning that I don't envision everyone to be walking around with this app in their pocket and being like, oh, what does this surface look like, right? Yeah, that, that just doesn't make sense. Um, but what it could do is enable the manufacturing of components that they have direct um, contact with. So one example are uh, eyeglasses. They're starting to use very interesting, in crazy shapes there, right. uh, and maybe you know during that fabrication process, they'd like to be able to measure how that shape looks, and this could be a good, you know, cheap technology, uh, very quick. You know, you don't need super high precision, but you need a very fast measurement. So it's an application for them. Mm-hmm. Um, something else that we have looked at doing is uh, in the infrared. Um, Use, we've had some interest in, in how that applies to quality control there. So really, not, not a direct application, but more in terms of the devices that use optics and optical surfaces that this could be applied to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it comes down to being an efficient, cost-efficient process. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. Yeah, you. thanks for having me. It's been great fun. Yeah, great.
2: OK, so if anyone is interested in this paper, we can just search the S10s space shifting directory by Isaac Trumper, He Choi, and David King.
0: And additionally, it's on the LOFT uh, group website. All right, I think that does it for today's episode. Thank you for listening.
2: Thank you for listening.
0: And uh, if you guys have any suggestions or criticisms or recommendations on people that you'd like us to interview, please email us at spotlightreport at gmail.com.
2: Yeah, and don't forget to follow us on the Facebook, which is the SPL Report. Thank you.